Good morning and thank you very much for inviting me back here, Colvain. It's a privilege to be able to share this morning. And uh, today is the first day of December and uh, it's the Christmas season that's upon us. Uh, it's amazing how quickly the years go by, especially the older you get, like me. Uh, it's really quite frightening how quickly Christmas has come this year. But anyway, I wanted to talk about Christmas this, this morning and... Um, there's a lot of peripheral things that are involved with it. We've got uh, out the back there, or in the front, I should say, we can see Christmas trees, we can see Christmas decorations, we have Christmas candy canes, we have um, Santa Claus and elves and all sorts of funny things like this that the world uses to try and deflect away from what the real meaning of Christmas is. And this morning I just wanted to, to focus in on uh, what Christmas is and is it for real? Can we rely on what the Bible says about the birth of Christ and who he was. Now I apologise if I'm standing in the way of these people here, but um, I hope you can all see. Is that all right? Okay, good. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44, these are the words that the Lord Jesus said. He said to his disciples, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So what Jesus is saying to us this morning is, I have fulfilled all those things that the prophets, the psalmists, and the book of the law of Moses told, or foretold about me. And so we're going to look this morning at some of the evidence. Now one of the things that confuses people is, December the 25th, why on earth do we have Christmas on the 25th? Well, why do we celebrate the Queen's birthday on the first, day, uh, first Monday of uh, uh, was it June, isn't it? Something like that. Well, it's... We don't know exactly when his birth date was, but uh, we celebrate it because the world celebrates it on the 25th of December. So um, it might not be his real birth date, but that doesn't matter. The point is that we can focus on this one who is our saviour, the one who God gave and he came into this world and he was born in a manger uh, and laid in, born in a stable and laid in a manger uh, more than 2,000 years ago. It's an amazing story. And so we're going to investigate some of the events this morning uh, and some of the evidence and proofs, if you like, of what the Bible has to say about the birth of Christ. We're going to investigate the events of Christmas and see if this baby Jesus who was born on this day is indeed the Messiah, the Christ. We'll begin by looking at some of the prophetic um, things that were fulfilled and then we're going to look at some of the archaeological um, discoveries that have made and been made in recent times to prove the accuracy of the eyewitness accounts of the scriptures that we read. You know, this baby Jesus who was born in a stable and laid in a manger, he, was, he grew up to become an amazing man. And he made some outrageous claims about himself. But who was the man behind these claims? And if you've thought about that before, you're not the first one that have asked, who is this man? In Mark chapter 4 verse 41, the disciples asked this question, who is this man? Even the wind and waves obey him. In Luke chapter 5 verse 21, the Pharisees asked, Who is this man? Who can forgive sins but God alone? In Luke 9 verse 9, Herod asked, Who is this man of whom I hear such things? In Matthew 16 verse 15, Jesus said to his disciples, But who do you say I am? He's asking you this morning, Who do you think he is? Who do you say he is. The Lord Jesus put everything online 
on the line when he said concerning himself, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled as that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. He's using this as a proof of who he was that he claimed to be. He claimed to be the son of God, so what proof did he offer? He offered the fulfillment of prophecy. So let's investigate some of these uh, prophecies that were fulfilled by the Lord Jesus' birth. Matthew 1 verse 23 says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. This is a reference to the birth of Jesus. And Matthew cited a specific prophecy that was made by Isaiah more than 700 years beforehand. In Isaiah 7 verse 14 it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So there's the first one. He was born of a virgin. The second we see in Matthew 2 verse 3, after the birth of Christ, the Magi arrived in Jerusalem, and Herod gathered the chief priests and scribes and asked them where the Messiah was going to be born. And they responded by citing an Old Testament prophecy pinpointing Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Messiah. And it says in Matthew chapter six, uh, chapter 2, verse 6, which compares back to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem, the la- in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. See, Herod's murderous response to this was the slaughtering of the young children, the young boys, I should say, in Bethlehem. And that led to the fulfillment of another prophecy. And by the way, um, people will say to you that there's no evidence in history that the, um, there were children killed by Herod in, in Bethlehem. Well, you know, we often think that there was this massive slaughter. How big do you think Bethlehem was when uh, Christ was born there? It was only probably 500 or so people. Well, how many children under two years of age would there have been? Maybe 20 or so? I don't know. But there would have been a number of them. But it wouldn't have made big headlines in those days because Herod was a murderous tyke. He even killed his own family. So uh, it was nothing unusual in what he did, but it brought about this fulfillment of the prophet uh, Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. The next prophecy that we'll look at quickly is... um, it was fulfilled because of the result of this uh, murderous attempt by, uh, by Herod to get rid of the Messiah. See, Joseph was warned in a dream to take his wife Mary and the baby and take them down to Egypt. And because he did that, Hosea's prophecy was fulfilled in uh, Hosea 11 verse 1. Upon their return um, back to Israel, um, Hosea's words were fulfilled because God said, out of Egypt I called my son. You see, amazing, isn't it, that God knew beforehand that his son would be taken down to uh, to Egypt and there he would be brought out of Egypt and fulfill that prophecy. In the genealogies that are recorded in Matthew's first chapter, we discover the fulfillment of several other prophecies. Um, We see that Jesus was from the line of Abraham. from the line of Jacob, 
from the line of Judah, from the line of Jesse and David, but that's not all. A search through the rest of the scriptures would reveal dozens of other details that are prophesied about the Messiah, including the following. In uh, Matthew or Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9, he says he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. Psalm 41 verse 9, he would be betrayed by a friend. Zechariah verse 11 verse, uh, chapter 11 verse 12, the betrayal would be for 30 pieces of silver, and that's really important. 30 pieces of silver, we'll come back to that. Uh, Zechariah 11 verse 13, that the money that he was betrayed for would be used to purchase a potter's field. In uh, Daniel 9 verse 26 and Isaiah 53 verse 8, the Messiah would die a sacrificial death for us. In Isaiah 53 verse 9, he would die with criminals, but his burial would be with the wealthy. Isaiah 53 verse 10, he would rise from the dead. The Old Testament tells us of certain words that he would speak on the cross, and they were fulfilled exactly. In Psalm 22 verse 1, 8 and 18, it says that he would be mocked, that the people would gamble for his clothes. And there are many, many more prophecies that could be listed that were perfectly fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. Now these were not lucky guesses made by charlatans. These were precise predictions that were made by God repeatedly. He demonstrated that he had perfect knowledge of all that is in the past, in the present, and in the future. He knows Skeptics try and explain these, theory, these um, prophecies away with several theories. And uh, I'd just like to go through uh, a number of them. The first is the conspiracy theory. A valid question could be asked, couldn't the gospel writers have uh, faked everything, including the birth of Christ, and made it look like this man, Jesus, fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies? For example, uh, could they not have stopped... Uh, yeah, for example... Could they have stopped the Romans from breaking the bones of his body when he was crucified? Did the disciples have that power? No, they didn't. Did they arrange for the price to be paid for his betrayal to be exactly 30 pieces of silver? No, they weren't involved in that at all. This was a decision made by the, the Sanhedrin. They paid exactly 30 pieces of silver. Could they have decided that he would be born in, in Bethlehem? Could they have arranged it? Well, they weren't even there, most of them. Could the apostles have played a little loose with the facts? No, it just doesn't add up for a number of reasons. You see, I think God in his wisdom, he created checks and balances in, the out, in and outside of the first century uh, Christian community to, to prove that these things actually happened. During the years that was following Christ's death, many eyewitnesses were still around. They could have begun to say, well, it didn't happen that way. You know, I was there when he was uh, crucified and they did break the bones of his legs. I saw it. Um, and he never said, you know, my God, why have, have you forsaken me when he was on the cross? Because I was there, I heard. But nobody came forward and said anything like that, did they? The Jewish leaders could have said, no, we only paid Judas 25 pieces of silver. Uh, or, you know, we didn't even pay him anything. It was, it was that's a load of nonsense. But they didn't say that because they had done it. And it was exactly 30 pieces of silver, just as the Old Testament said his, he would be betrayed for. 
The Jews of the first century took their spiritual journey very seriously, and they would have used any evidence that they could find to disprove the disciples' claims. What's more, the Jewish community could have jumped on the first chance that they had to discredit the Gospels as fake news, not as good news. With fake, fulfilled prophecies, it would have been so easy for them to denounce the writers as liars and, the, and, and the, what they'd written as nonsense. But do you know this? The Jewish Talmud, it mentions Jesus Christ many times. Now, the Jewish Talmud was the record of what was decided by the Sanhedrin and the, and the decisions that they were making regarding to the interpretation of the law and the history and different things that were happening around in the Sanhedrin. And although it mentions Jesus Christ many times, not once does it make the claim that the fulfilled prophecies connected with him were falsified in any way at all. Not once. No, the conspiracy fails to explain fulfilled prophecy. So uh, another line of thought that the skeptics raise is the the counterfeit example or the assumption that it, it was all counterfeit. Well, believe it or not, some of the skeptics really believe that Jesus simply manipulated his life in a way to fulfill the prophecies. For example, Jesus could have read in Zechariah that the Messiah was to come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And so to fulfill that, he would have arranged to have a donkey there and ride in. Well, yeah, he could have done that. I mean, that's quite logical. And, um, you know, that's reasonable to argue, isn't it? But... uh, That's just one of the prophecies that you could argue that. There are so many others that were fulfilled that made no sense. He couldn't have counterfeited his birth. He couldn't have controlled the Sanhedrin to give them 30 pieces of silver for his betrayal. No, if the Sanhedrin had realized that precisely 30 pieces of silver was what was prophesied, I'm sure they would have made something quite different. They would have offered Judas a lot more or a lot less, but uh, they wouldn't have made it exactly 30 pieces of silver. Could he arrange his genealogy? No. Could he decide the place of his birth? No, he couldn't do that either. Could he have talked the soldiers into gambling for his clothes instead of tearing them up like they usually did? No. Did he manipulate the way in which he died? Could he have controlled that? Well, actually, that was the decision that was outside his control. It was made by the Roman governor that he was to be crucified. You understand that no one can... Uh, prearrange their place of birth, don't you? Humanly speaking, such a scenario is impossible. It's preposterous even. Now, he didn't counterfeit or manipulate things in his life to fulfill prophecy. Man could not do that. The conspiracy and counterfeit theories both fail. Ah, but it must have been a coincidence then. Maybe all these things happened, but it was a coincidence. Well, if anyone buys that, I think they need to get some professional help. The odds are so far off the chart that any one person could fulfill just eight prophecies, let alone over 300 that are recorded in the Old Testament. It's it's just amazing. Mathematician Peter Stoner has figured that fulfilling just eight of the 300 prophecies connected to the requirements of the Messiah is one chance, and listen to this, 100 million billion. Now that number is millions of times greater than the total number of people who have ever lived on this planet. And to give you an idea of what those chances are like, if you could get, oh, I haven't got one with me, a $2 coin, just a little $2 coin like that, and if you could get enough of them together to cover all of New Zealand, 
including all its islands, and uh, have it mounting up to about one meter, 06, something like that high, and mark just one of those coins with a little bit of ink on the back of it, and then blindfold someone and send them out and ask them to find that one specific coin, and they had one chance to do it. Do you reckon they could do it? <laughs> Absolutely not. One chance in 100 million billion. That number is phenomenal. Now, Peter Stoner has also gone on to statistically figure out the prob probability of one man fulfilling 48 of the 300 prophecies of the Messiah. Are you ready for this one? One chance in a trillion, 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 trillion. That's 13 trillions. I mean, if you can do it for eight, how would you ever do it for that? Acts chapter 3 verse 18 says, Those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. Every one of them. It didn't happen by chance. It was planned in the foreknowledge of God. Now if Peter, when he um, spoke those words, if he could have known the odds that Jesus was fulfilling just those crucifixion prophecies, it would have blown his mind. Well, the conspiracy theory, the counterfeit theory, the assumption, uh, the counterfeit assumption and the coincident approach have failed to explain the fulfillment of prophecies around the birth of Christ. So what have we left? The Creator made it happen. That's the simple answer. Part of the picture of Jesus must match the fact that God is an uncreated being who has always existed in eternity, past, present, and future. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, He lives forever. But there are verses that make this claim very hard to understand. So let's look, for example, at John 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Now many say that the begetting or creating was done in the body of the Virgin Mary. But this, in fact, falls far short in translation. The word begotten literally means the unique one. This word is used in the first century, and it always meant unique and beloved. So John was stating that, he, that Jesus is the unique and beloved Son of God Almighty. In other words, he's the one and only Son. Colossians 1 verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now in the Old Testament, most scholars believe that this phrase, firstborn, was connected to the law of succession. That is, that the firstborn male received the largest portion of the family inheritance. It would have been quite nice if that still applied today, but it doesn't. My father died just about two years ago, nearly a year and a half ago. And we just received his inheritance very recently. And uh, I got the same amount as all my brothers and sister. And, uh, you know, that's fair. But in the days that that was written, the eldest son got the double proportion. Uh, so logically, the firstborn son was given the rights of his father. And by the end of the second century BC, up into the days of Christ, this term was broadened to mean that the firstborn had all the authority that came with the position of being the legal heir. To us, the firstborn term is very misleading. It literally, 
The literal meaning of the firstborn is supreme heir. It's fascinating to see that in the Old Testament, it uses words like alpha and omega, saviour, deliverer, redeemer, light, rock, shepherd, creator, forgiver of sin, to describe God. In the New Testament, it applies those same words and terms to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus could confidently say in John 14 verse 7, if you really knew me, you would know the Father as well. The loose translation of that is, look at the sketch of God in the Old Testament and you will see the likeness of me in the New. Only God could have fulfilled all these prophecies. What about the archaeological claims of Christmas? You know, there were lots of strange things that happened. There was a star that rose in the west. You ever heard of a star that rises in the west? There were the wise men who came from the east. There were lots of things that happened that were recorded about the birth of Christ. Archaeological or archaeology cannot form faith, but it can inform faith. Archaeology brings forth the tangible remnants of history so that faith can have a reasonable context in which to develop. It can confirm our faith. There is no doubt that Christmas has some incredible claims contained in it within the narratives found in the Bible. Claims that would make the sceptical searcher scratch their head. Maybe you've felt this way at times and maybe you've had some major reservations about this greatest story that was ever told. Well, you're in the right place this morning. The Christmas story is found in the books of Luke and Matthew. Luke probably gives us the most uh, detailed description and the most theological truths about the birth of Christ. And it is archaeology that helps us more than 2,000 years on from that to put the real substance to the claims of Christ. In the Israeli Antiquities Authority database, archaeology has more than 100,000 historical biblical artifacts that have been discovered in Israel since 1948. Bible archaeology has only been around about 150 years. Before that, it was treasure hunters that dangerously searched for the history. And we'd better put that next one up if I've got it. Next one. Yeah, recognize him? Uh, yeah, Indiana Jones. And people like that who went around the world searching for treasure. They weren't really interested in what uh, everything uh, might mean and what, it, uh, what its history was. They were after the gold and the silver and stuff like that. And so it was that they raided tombs and all sorts of things. And we lost a lot of history. But today, as I said, there's more than 100,000 pieces of uh, biblical artifacts that have been there over in Israel. So facts to carry into the study about archaeology. The proper use of biblical archaeology is to confirm, correct, clarify, and complement the Bible's theology. Psalm 85 verse 11 says this, Truth shall spring out of the earth. There will always be a battle of, between the facts and faith. The early church fathers, or the early church father Tertullian, or Tertullian wrote, I do not understand in order to believe, I believe in order to understand. John McRae, he wrote the handbook on biblical archaeology. He studied Hebrew at Vanderbilt University of Divinity and the University of Chicago. And he's now a professor at, uh, of New Testament archaeology at Wheaton College in the United States. 
In his masterpiece, Archaeology in the New Testament, he writes this. Listen to what he says. Archaeology has not produced anything that is unequivocally a contradiction of the Bible. On the contrary, there have been many opinions of skeptical scholars that have become codified into fact over the years. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 11 says, The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. It's almost as if we are able to touch and feel the first century ourselves. A good example of this is found in Caesarea, a seaport of Herod's that contained a massive harbour. The first century Jewish historian Josephus recorded about um, this harbour as being as big as the harbour in Athens. But for the longest time, no one believed that there was such a harbour at Caesarea. For centuries, they they dismissed it because there was nothing like that along the whole coastline of of, uh, modern-day Israel. They'd never found any evidence of it until recently. Archaeology comes to the rescue. Can we look at the next one? This is it today from the air, and uh, you can see just very faintly around here under the water, around there, is the remains of Herod's harbour. The harbour was built using Roman techniques which allowed them to pour concrete underwater. Concrete's been around a long time, I didn't realise that. But they built this massive harbour with great concrete blocks. If we go to the next one, there's a diver, two divers underwater, showing you some of these concrete blocks. Absolutely amazing. They're about five metres under the water now. They used to be above the sea. But um, what Herod didn't know when he built that harbour was that it was built on a fault line. And a series of earthquakes occurred and then a big tsunami came through and uh, the harbour sank over five metres into the, into the sea and it disappeared. That harbour was over 40 acres and it could accommodate up to 300 ships. Josephus called this the most magnificent palace and it was built by Herod the Great and it contained this great artificial harbour as part of it. It's important because, why do I mention it, this harbour in Caesarea, it's important because it was an historical place that's referred to in the book of Acts. You see, the Apostle Paul, he was taken to Caesarea and he was imprisoned there for two years before he went to Rome. And uh, Luke was with him. And it was during that two-year time that Luke used his time to go and investigate and find out what actually happened to the Lord Jesus Christ, how he was born, where he was born, and all the details about it. He went and spoke to all the, the, um, the disciples and other eyewitnesses who saw these things. Now, if there wasn't a harbour in Caesarea and there was no palace there to lock Paul up, then he was telling a story that was made up, but it wasn't. It was based on fact. If Luke got that bit wrong, then the rest of the New Testament may as well be wrong as well. In uh, Luke chapter 1, I'd just like to read to you what Luke said about this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, 
I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. And notice the key words from Luke's opening account. There were eyewitnesses. Luke uses the apostles and others like Mary, the mother of Jesus, as the primary source of his writings. He's literally saying, I have carefully investigated or carefully examined the facts. With certainty, you may know with firmness and stability the historical evidence that's before you. You can rely on the account of Luke. Dr. Norman Geisler writes, Luke references 32 countries, 54 cities and 9 islands without a single mistake. Dr. Bruce Metzger of Princeton Theological Seminary writes this, There are an unprecedented number of New Testament manuscripts that can be dated extremely close to the original writings. The New Testament is 99.5% free of textual discrepancies with no major Christian doctrines in doubt. Dr. Gary Habermas writes in his book, The Historical Jesus, one expert documented 39 ancient historical or non-biblical sources that corroborate more than 100 facts concerning Jesus' life, teaching, crucifixion, and resurrection. This is important because remember Caesarea. It was a place, a real place. Luke was with Paul on most of his missionary journeys, and Paul was imprisoned in this fortress at Caesarea for two years. Now, a lot of people say that Luke, when he was writing this, was writing this as Paul's defense when he was to appear before, um, the, before the Caesar. And so this was an account of, of the basis of the Christian faith. And so he wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts to demonstrate to Caesar the reasonable uh, and, and responsibility that uh, Paul had for all the things that he did and said and thought. During those two years, Luke had plenty of time to go and visit uh, and research and investigate the story of Christmas and the claims uh, that were made around that. In Luke chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip was tetrarch of Iturea, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. You know, for the longest time, scholars laughed that Luke mentioned this guy, Lysanias, because all history knew that Lysanias lived more than 50 years before in Greece. So you couldn't possibly have been in, uh, in, in uh, Palestine or in, in Israel as Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. But all that changed when archaeology stepped in and found an inscription with the names Lysanias, and if you'd like to put the next one up, um, should have it. there it is there, a coin was found. And it had the name Lysanias, the joint ruler of Damascus, during the life of Christ. Isn't that amazing? There was no other evidence anywhere else except in the Bible, and Luke was correct. They discovered this coin, and they knew with certainty that the Bible was correct in this small detail. Now, if Luke got it right in a small detail like this, then we can rely on the rest of it, can't we? There's no doubt that the biblical archaeology is plentiful in telling the story of Christmas. Folks, we've just journeyed through around the world 2,000 years back. 
And in that time, we can recognize the reality that rocks, with the rocks, is radical. The, the, they proclaim the truth of our hearts, or to our hearts, and they confirm just how amazing the Bible is. And I've only just talked a couple of little things. You can go and investigate lots more things, that's for sure. But the Bible is correct. It's an amazing book. And Jesus Christ is the most talked about man of history. In fact, our history, our dating system revolves around it, him. You know, before Christ and Anno Domini, after Christ. They want to change that, of course. It's now before the Common Era and things like that because they want to deny the existence of this man, Jesus Christ. We can rely on the biblical account. Did he enter this world as a fulfillment of prophecy, as the eyewitnesses attest? God so loved the world, that is you and I, that he gave his one and only son for us. He came to give his life as a ransom. I'm not sure how many of you know that more than 10 years ago I had a kidney transplant. And uh, a friend of mine gave me a kidney and... Uh, we can go on and have a look if you like. That's me before I had my transplant, in my, sitting in my lounge at home. And that big blue thing there with the screen and stuff, that uh, used to take the blood out of my body, take it and put it through filters, and then pump it back into me. And it took about four and a half hours every two days. And that was my existence. I couldn't go anywhere. I had to stay close to home and close to that machine because that was my lifeline. See how big it is? It's bigger than a four-drawer filing cabinet. And that does the job of two little kidneys that sit inside your body. God can miniaturize things in such a way. It's amazing. That thing there didn't do a very good job. I was actually dying and didn't have much hope unless somebody gave me a new kidney. And I'm not the only one that's been there. I look down there and there's another person who gave a kidney to her daughter as well. Judy, well done. Two little kidneys. Both of them, in my case, had failed. The machine kept me alive, but I was slowly dying. One morning at ISBC, this man, if you like to put the next fellow up, Stuart Hilton, some of you will know Stuart, he was sitting in church and he said it was like a voice from God said to him, you could give Roger a kidney. And he came up to me afterwards and he said, Roger, how would I go about giving you a kidney. And I said, well, I couldn't possibly ask you to do that, but if, you, if you're serious about it, go and talk to the renal people on Palmerston North and um, they'll talk to you. Well, he went and saw them and six months later, nothing had happened and he came back to me and said, there's nothing happened. And I said, well, you just talk to them again. And they came back and said, oh, are you serious about it? Yeah, I'm serious. I wouldn't have offered, he said, but um, let's get the test done. And they got the test done and they found that he has no relationship to me at all, but he was a closer match to my body than my sister. It wasn't that amazing. God put it on his heart that he should give me a kidney, and he did. And so one day we were taken down to Wellington, and uh, we were both put under anaesthetic, and he had uh, his kidney removed from his body, and they put it in, in me. And uh, from there, I haven't looked back. It's been an absolutely amazing gift of life that Stuart gave me. You know, I could have said to Stuart, no, no, that's going to cost you too much. I just don't want to uh, put you to that. But uh, he was insistent. He had two. He only needed one. And um, he wanted me to have the other. Well, that happened 
more than 10 years ago. An even greater gift is being offered to you today. God gave his son, the Lord Jesus, born of, a Mary, a virgin, the, born of the Virgin Mary to be our saviour. He was born to give his life as a sacrifice for our sins. He suffered and died on the cross to take the punishment that rightly belonged to you and I. Today he offers you the gift, the free gift of, of salvation, of eternal life. Now I could have rejected Stuart's offer as gift of life. Could you imagine what would have happened if um, he'd been put under the anesthetic first and, and then I, uh, they'd removed his kidney and, and I hadn't been under and, and I decided, no, I'd change my mind? Um, you know, how insulting would that have been to him? It would have been a, a, a terrible insult. But you know, God is offering you the same gift today, the gift of eternal life, not just life, physical life like I've been and received. He's paid the price already. If you say no to that gift, you're throwing the love of God back in his face. It cost him everything. But it will not benefit you at all unless you receive it. You see, I had to receive that kidney. I had to make it mine. And I'll tell you what, I look after it. I'm very careful what I eat. I'm, you might sort of laugh, but um, yeah, I, I, I am. I'm very careful, I'm very fussy at what I eat. And I look after it. I take my medication every day. I mean, I have to. I've got a pile of pills. You wouldn't believe how many that I take each day. But I take them because they stop the, my body rejecting that kidney. If you've already received the gift of eternal life from the Lord Jesus Christ, what are you doing to look after that gift that he's given you? Are you feeding on his word? Are you honoring him in the way that you live your life? Are you remembering that you were bought at a price and that you don't belong to yourself anymore? Why not surrender to the most incredible man of all time and accept him as your saviour and honour him as your saviour this morning? I'm just going to finish with saying this. And it's a quotation from John chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you, you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's all it takes. You need to accept, receive, and hold on to that wonderful gift by believing in his name. God bless you, and thank you for this time.